You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. For about 20 minutes in 2018, I thought about pursuing a Ph.D., and I wanted to look at an, the area of public theology. And really, the only seminary that I thought about was Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. They have stellar leadership. Their faculty is excellent. Uh, I know and appreciate so many of the people that work there and teach there. Uh, this is how they say it. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary exists to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. As you interact with culture, politics, and your neighbor, Southeastern wants to equip you to take the gospel to all the world and in every part of your life. And they do that. They send out a tremendous number of missionaries, or train them at least. Consider visiting their campus in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and seeing what they mean when they say, every classroom, a Great Commission classroom. They have 40 degree programs from BA to PhD. Wherever you're going, Southeastern Seminary can help you get there. To learn more, visit their website, sebts.edu. That's sebts.edu, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Bruce Ashford has been teaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary since 2003 and became the provost in 2013. His goal in teaching is to encourage his students to bear witness to the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel and to work out its implications in all facets of their lives and in all dimensions of culture. Ashford is the co-author of One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics, the author of Every Square Inch, An Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians, Letters to an American Christian, and is the editor of Theology and Practice of Mission. He's married to Lauren, with whom he has two daughters, Riley and Anna, and a son, John Paul Kuyper. Bruce Ashford, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, it's great to be on the show, Marty. Thanks for having me on. So I've already given everybody the, uh, you know, like the proper bio that I scraped together off of your website and all that kind of stuff. But uh, just so the folks who are stopping by who may not know you specifically, uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I live uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm a provost, uh, means chief academic officer, and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, married, have three children, uh, do a lot of writing, written, published six books, and um, and have written uh, regularly for Fox News Opinion, and have written womp, occasionally, womp. occasionally for uh, Daily Signal, Daily Caller, and some of those outlets. Okay. Enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you are what I would call, and probably what you would call yourself a public theologian. Uh, you are standing on the street corner, screaming out, uh, words that end in ology, uh, trying <laughs> to get the average person to listen to you. No, you're, you're taking your, your theological system, you're applying it in the, in the public square, as we would say. Um, talk a little bit about, is that a, is that a long known, thing. Um, I mean, I went to Bible college and I've been around seminaries, haven't been to one and, and public theology wasn't something that's talked about a lot. Is that making kind of a resurgence? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, public theology as a, as a term hasn't been used until recently in the past few decades and nobody really knows what it is. And it's still sort of forming <laughs> as a discipline. If I were to describe it, I would say that, that public theology is a discipline that arises, um, in sort of uh, contradistinction to secularism on the one hand and sectarian Christianity on the other hand, right? 
And so a public theologian is somebody who draws upon Christian theology, uh, Christian ethics, and Christian philosophy to uh, sort of represent Christianity to the public and to try to speak a good word into a bad situation on public policy issues, matters of social, cultural, and political debate. Okay. Um, so what that looks like is writing commentary, writing opinion pieces for news outlets, um, writing on your blog, writing books. Uh, so you're essentially, you're trying to, uh, influence the thinking, uh, in the wider culture outside of just the, uh, the seminary type academy. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you've got some public theologians who aim, uh, for the educated class, you know, for the, uh, you know, or, or, or the leadership class, you've got others that aim for everyday Americans. I try to hit both. I write pieces, you know, that, that aim for political leaders and and thought leaders and that kind of thing, but focus a, lot, a, a good bit of energy just writing for everyday Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, most Christians, or many Christians, put it that way, have, you know, in order to sort of keep up with current events and to figure out how they ought to think about things, have listened to news outlets like CNN or Fox or MSNBC for hours and hours a day for 30, 40, 50, 60 years of their life mm -hmm. and find themselves, whether you know whether we know it or not, deeply discipled and shaped by secular news outlets. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, every, every news outlet has a narrative, mm -hmm. right, of the world. And in that narrative, uh, uh, they'll identify what the greatest evils are, and then they'll identify what it'll take to save us from those evils, and they'll... Uh, they'll have a certain tone, you know, of discourse. And, you know, I think Christians have been shaped so much by talk radio and by TV outlets, people on the left and the right, mm -hmm. that it's going to be an act of God and a real miracle if a, if a few public theologians can make much of a difference. But uh, we do what we do out of faithfulness and not uh, necessarily because we're going to, you know, become a, a public sensation of some sort or influence a ton of people. Uh, so you've been really busy the last couple of years uh, theologizing in public uh, after the uh, elections in 2016. Um, surprisingly to uh, almost everybody, not everybody obviously, but almost everybody, uh, Donald Trump prevailed and uh, beat uh, Hillary Clinton for president. And um, what what seemed to be surprising to many, though, was the strong support that Donald Trump got from um, evangelicals and white evangelicals in particular. Um, now, at the time, it seemed that you could argue um, Hillary Clinton's policies or her positions had were and had been for so many years uh, really, really outside the bounds of like conservative Christianity. Her position on abortion comes to mind for sure. And so many people, and I've heard people say this, uh, you know, I didn't vote for Trump as much as I voted against uh, Hillary Clinton. But the support numbers for Trump have remained extremely high, uh, even after Hillary Clinton's way off the scene. I mean, nobody's voting against her anymore. Um, do you have any thoughts um, on why the, the support for Donald Trump has remained so high when his, you know, so much of his personal behavior seems to be um, negative, uh, his behavior historically has been, um, not 
the picture of morality that we would we would hope to see in public servants. Uh, and and now the investigation that's been going on so long is is uncovering. I mean, it's like the breadcrumbs are leading right up to Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, do you have any thoughts on why evangelical so many evangelicals have have been so steadfast uh, in their support for Trump even after his election? Yeah, you know, let me back up a little bit and just say something about uh, the media's uh, definition of what an evangelical is. Okay, I guess uh, so. I'm going to say on the fair. one hand, on the one hand, the numbers aren't exactly right, but on the other hand, you're right. And the press is right that uh, there is a lot of evangelical support. But, you know, the, the, the media uh, counts as an evangelical, anybody who's a white evangelical, anybody who's, you know, white and not an atheist <laughs> as it, at, at some point in their life claim to be a Christian and they're not a part of a mainline church. And if you um, Joe Carter did the stats on this and a couple of other people did that if you use an evangelical definition of evangelical, like Bebbington's definition, and you include in it something that real evangelicals would include, like regular church attendance, the numbers drop sharply, Mm -hmm. steeply from 80 percent down to anywhere from 30 to 60 percent, depending on who's crunching the numbers. So that's one thing that I would say that church attendance actually makes a, a, a difference. Um, but on the other hand, you're right. There's been a lot of support. Let me tell you how I experienced it. So I actually, um, had just published my first book on politics in 2015 before the Trump, um, thing happened. And I just started writing for Fox and in the, um, in the primaries, I opposed him from the pages of Fox news. And at that point there were still the the vast majority of the leadership class were in, in unison, uh, opposing him. And a pretty good number of uh, of the Fox audience was too, but and they, they gave me really good slots. Like I got to publish the the opinion piece on the at eleven thirty at night, the night that Ted Cruz dropped out of the race. Mm. And but I noticed a shift that right after that happened, after Cruz dropped out and Trump became the the candidate, that slowly but surely, and then quickly but surely, um, people rallied around him. So much so that I, I realized that when I criticized him, even just an even-handed criticism, mm-hmm. well, he did this right but didn't do this well, or he shouldn't have done that, we shouldn't give our full support to him, that I noticed that that um, with most everyday conservatives or with many, their minds were made up, and I would get tuned out immediately. Wow. And and I'm and I think the reason why is. I'm just speaking off the cuff here. Sure. Um, I don't think it's so much that evangelicals agree with him. I think that many of them love him and have deep affection for him and take delight in the fact that he's willing to be a warrior and he's their warrior. And even if a lot of what he says and does is the same things that Bill Clinton did, the kind of things that we would criticize him for, or even if some of the things that he says and does— you know, a conservative would come unhinged if Barack Obama had done it. Yeah. They're going to treat it as, you know, that's just, uh, that's part of it. And it's okay. It's like the, you know, sort of endearing character flaws that Uncle Bert has, you know, at the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner table. So, what is it that he's warring against that causes them to love him? I mean, is it just a pugilistic attitude about things? Well, you know, the answer to that is multifaceted, and I'm not sure I can, you know, 
wrap my mind around it, but I can give some elements of it. Uh, I think there are individual policy issues, and then there is the culture war. So if we start with policy issues, um, he's a marketer. Trump's a marketer. It's the only yeah. thing he's ever been really successful at. He wasn't apparently that great at, at, at uh, real estate and bankrupted multiple times and so forth. But he's very good at marketing, especially marketing himself. And uh, he had good people advising him. And I think he has good intuitions, too. And he understood that there was a lot of anger about immigration. Mm-hmm. Now, I think immigration, there, I think it's something we need to pay attention to, but I don't think we can blame immigration for the economic woes of the working class. Right. <laughs> there, may be, there may be, you know, there, there's some, you know, there, there's some, some truth to the fact that some people, you know, maybe have, have been hurt economically by that. But, but anyway, immigrants are, are being blamed for it. And he really struck a chord. And for some people, that is a visceral and emotional issue. And I found out, I found out the hard way, yeah. you know on that. Um, and there's a, other public policy issues. I mean, the fact that uh, Trump has uh, is in a coalition with conservatives. I don't, I don't think he's a conservative in any manner of being conservative that you know anyone would have agreed on until recently. Yeah, I think he's a pragmatist and a nationalist who is in a coalition with conservatives. To his credit, this is where I'm getting to a policy issue, he's kept his, uh, he's kept his word on two issues and I didn't think he would but he did he's kept his issues he's kept his um, his promise on, on appointing supreme court justices that will interpret the constitution according to according to the way people would have interpreted it in the day that it was written and then number 2 he has kept his promise to pro life people he showed up at a pro life rally if i'm not mistaken the last three or four conservative presidents have have not shown up to a pro-life rally. Now, there's a lot in, in more person you're being pro-life. About. Huh? In President person Trump. you're talking about. Yeah, in person. Yeah. You know, and uh, now there's a lot more to being pro-life than showing up at a rally. And pro-life involves more than just unborn lives. It mm. involves treating uh, uh, human beings who have already been born with dignity and respect. And I think he, in a lot of ways, has, has not succeeded in, in doing that. But anyway, so the first category is policy issues. And this excites some conservatives, especially, I would say, immigration and uh, the pro-life issue. Mm-hmm. But the second is just culture war. You know, so I was in college in the 90s and I was in college Republicans and uh, was freshman class president and headed for a political career and became pretty disillusioned because I felt like the the talk show hosts that I interacted with and the some of the people in the party who I interacted with really didn't uh, care one whit about the sort of things that I really cared about, such as pro-life issue. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I ended up walking away from it. But what I gained out of that is is there is a real culture war in America, and it's it's a real thing. But it's become more toxic because of talk show hosts and political commentators mm-hmm. on the left and the right. And here's the deal. Here's what happens. Uh, we're in the we're in the late stages of capitalism, and there's some pretty severe distortions, and human sin is coming through. And you see it with the new media outlets. The media outlets have uh, significantly lowered their standards for what's what is newsworthy. Right. And all of them uh, look a lot more like tabloids every day. They do real time uh, tracking and data analysis of TV, radio, and um, the the website 
websites, and they know what it is that makes people angry and afraid, because anger and fear drives people to come back to a site over and over again. Right. And the news outlets, all of them have been influenced by that. Then compounding that, the major media outlets are now also competing with websites and podcasts. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're You're welcome, do Fox to, News yeah. and MSNBC. <laughs> or you can say, watch out, MSNBC <laughs> and Fox. Yeah, and and, and uh, so that has really um, exacerbated the issue. And so for many white evangelicals, you've got a guy who's a traitor to his own class, wealthy New Yorkers, and he's taken the side of the working-class man and pro-life people even when everybody knows he really doesn't care that much, you know, about that issue. Yeah. But they're, they feel grateful to him. And, uh, for me as a writer, it's, it's difficult because I know that if I criticize him on anything, it's just very, very difficult to persuade folks who have their minds made up and who have on either side of the aisle, left or right, difficult to persuade because they have been discipled Mm -hmm. for decades by secular talk show hosts. I want to give a quick plug to Bruce's book, Letters to an American Christian. Uh, This is a book where he addresses issues uh, concerning the relationship of politics and Christianity, and he uses the way historic Christian beliefs inform specific hot-button issues. It's written with his trademark style. I've known Bruce a long time. He's a great thinker. He's a guy that I appreciate being in the public space. So whether we're talking about our earthly citizenship or our heavenly citizenship, this is a book that addresses the rapid change, the pace of living, and how we need to relate to politics and culture and all those kinds of things. You can pick up a copy of Letters to American Christian anywhere books are sold. If you're interested in religion news, and especially if you are Southern Baptist, you really should be reading The Baptist Blogger. Uh, as the nation's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention has gone through recently a series of crises that one prominent theologian uh, has called humiliating, and that is a quote. Uh, a lot of questions about financial irregularities and proper spending, moral conduct of some convention leaders. Um, church leaders have literally been stunned. Uh, this has been national news over reports outlining cycles of abuse, cover-up, and carelessness, and uh, much of this was broken on the Baptist blogger. Uh, Baptist bloggers become a must-read for convention leaders, church ministers, If you're concerned about the SBC, you really should be reading the Baptist Blogger. Transparency, accountability, and integrity. You can find it at baptist-blogger.com. That's baptist-blogger.com, where outsiders learn what's happening inside the Southern Baptist Convention. It's hard to take seriously uh, the idea that uh, Christians could be uh, thoroughly discipled disciples of Jesus when we spend, you know, five minutes a day or less uh, in his word and praying and hours in front of uh, whatever news source, whether it's televised or radio or website or whatever, um, there, there, there is a reality that what you spend your time doing the most does form you. And I think we bring those, I mean, we, we open our mind to all these different channels of opinion, which form us. Then we come to God's word and it's, we're really interpreting, or we're, we're at least tempted, but there's the, the real possibility, the danger of interpreting God's Word through these filters that have now saturated our minds. And rather than our minds being renewed, the Word itself is being filtered uh, through all these opinions and whatever. And it, it's, it's a real problem, I think. It's a problem for pastors who are trying to raise godly people 
uh, on a you know one thirty to forty minute sermon on Sunday morning and a and a small group before or during the week uh, versus the hours and hours of content that each church member uh, tends to take in. And I mean, what's the solution? A media fast? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I often couch this in terms of liturgy. Um, for those listening to the podcast, if you're Anglican or Presbyterian or Catholic, um, you know, you probably hear the word liturgy pretty often. If you're Baptist or Pentecostal Bible Church, um, you may not, you know, uh, use the word very often, but uh, it, and you would use a worship, order of worship instead of the word liturgy. But, you know, in a church, a, a church has a liturgy, right, an order of worship. And so you come in and you're you're greeted. You have a moment of silence often. Uh, you you sing songs of worship that teach you something about God and also express something to God. You uh, have the Lord's Supper. You sit under the teaching of a pastor or a priest, uh, and then usually you are sent out into the world. There's some sort of sending that happens at the end of the service. It's a liturgy, and it's supposed to form us, and the pattern and the habit of it should form us over years, mm-hmm. that this is habitual. We do it over and over again. And everything about a liturgy should be teaching us something about God. Mm-hmm. I think there's a liturgy when it comes to to uh, politics and public life, and that the liturgy for many of us in America is that we sit in our homes with our preferred TV outlet or radio, um, program. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. program or whatever on for hours and hours and hours a day, and the liturgy involves eating our meal while mm-hmm. we're listening or watching having conversations with other people at our house while we're listening or watching. And over the course of a lifetime, the narrative of that TV outlet or that radio host is going to shape you much more significantly than the Bible and God's uh, people shape you. And so we have to fight for that not to happen. I can tell you one of the things that I'm, I tell you some things that I'm doing so that doesn't happen to me. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a political opinion writer. It's one of the things that I do. So I have to keep up with the news I prefer to do it by getting mailers from the Times, the Journal, Fox, and a number of other outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I come to realize that my mornings were dominated by reading those, mm-hmm. my best hours in the morning. So I don't do that anymore. I mean, my first thing in the morning and the longest thing that I do in the morning is time in the Scripture and in prayer and then in meaningful reading and thinking before I turn my mind to the news outlet. So that's one of the ways that I do it. Um <clears throat> I uh, severely limit my TV intake. Those of you listening on the podcast, if you're a podcaster, you may not be a TV watcher, but TV uh, drastically degrades a person's ability to, to think and carry on sustained discourse. In and of itself, TV does that. Uh, but then, What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> but then on top of it now, I mean, done studies now, and the, the average everyday American wants a, a change of pace every 10 to 12 seconds on a TV show. Thank you, MTV. And that's one of the reasons you see TV hosts interrupting their people, laughing at them, making fun of them, asking them an extra question. It's all a show. I mean, mm. it's it's just, it's entertainment. Even the news is entertainment. Yeah. So reduce your TV time if you can. I mean, there are some people, even some political leaders that uh, uh, don't or can't read very well and uh, in, take most of their, their news in via television. And, uh, you know, if that's a situation, then you'll have to take it in by television or radio. But um, if, if you find it easy enough to read, I would encourage to, uh, listeners to spend more time reading the news so that you can, can control it. Yeah. Um, 
What's next for uh, what's next for evangelicals in the in the political realm? Uh, let's assume uh, for a second, just to have a scenario to work with, um, that Donald Trump for some reason does not run in twenty twenty. Um, now, whether that's you know political pressure uh, or legal pressure, or he just gets bored, or you know whatever, he doesn't run in twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. So here's let me back up a little bit and, and survey uh, the landscape here in, in the states for a moment, so that I can pick back up and answer that question. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor uh, wrote a book called A Secular Age, mm-hmm. and he said something that a number of intellectuals have said, but he said it especially well. What he said in the book is that uh, the West in general, and the U.S. in particular, U.S. and Canada in particular, he focuses on, um, um, have seen Christianity displaced from the default position. It's no longer the major influencer over society. But not only has it been displaced from the default position, Christianity is now positively contested. It's jostling with dozens and dozens of ideologies, religions, different sort of takes Mm -hmm. or spins on life. And uh, the result is that hardly anyone in the West really believes what they say they believe. Everyone's a little bit confused. Everything's up in the air. There's a number of other thinkers who have said uh, things similar to that, but I think that's a situation we're in in the United States, and I think that the lines are are probably not ever going to be as clearly drawn anymore for evangelicals. I think as a general rule, we're going to have to see ourselves in a temporary coalition with a given political party or political leader. Uh, I think think we'll face on a regular basis more difficult choices about voting than we have in the past. Hmm, Interesting. Uh, I I could be wrong. I mean, I've proven to be a bad uh, predictor of the future. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you know what the Bible says about false prophets, so you just yeah, so ready. no pressure. Yeah, um, so I would, uh, given where we are uh, politically uh, right now, um, man, what I wouldn't give to see <laughs> a twenty twenty presidential race that was John Kasich and whoever his um, running mate would be on the Republican side, and Mitch Landrieu uh, and whoever his running mate would be on the Democratic side. If for no other reason that the debates themselves would be substantive and thoughtful and uh, there would be ideas that you could parse and decide whether or not uh, one's idea ideas and policy plans or whatever were better than the other. And I think that uh, that those guys or even someone like them uh, could do a job of possibly bringing their respective parties back from the edge of the abyss uh, and and give Americans at least something that when you went and casted your vote, you didn't feel like you had to uh, you know take a shower afterwards. And I, I don't know uh, that we'd ever get there in 2020, but man, I, that just makes my heart happy to think about having two people. And I'm not even saying it has to be two dudes, but just two people who are um, intelligent and thoughtful and uh, and caring enough about the office that. Uh, that they would be fun to watch and you know good to listen to. Yeah. Man, uh, are you going to run? I mean, can we can we expect you to throw your hat <laughs> in the ring? Yeah, yeah. That's, there's uh, not much chance that that's going to happen. But you, you know, you're right. It would be nice if we could have a sustained uh, national discussion and debate, and that we could have two candidates that 
can carry on such a discussion and debate. I I, I find it doubtful. Something is going to have to change in our society and culture for that to happen, because right now I think that many and probably most Americans want an all-out brawl, mm. and they want a candidate who will do that, and the candidates will give them what they want. They've learned uh, that, 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 that that's the way to win right now, and I think you're going to probably see it on the left and the right. Wow. Uh, that, uh, that most – if you believe that truth is subjective – like most Americans now do. Right. You know, if, if truth is objective and if it transcends us, then we can have a discussion and a debate and argue toward truth and walk away and have coffee afterwards, mm -hmm. right? But if truth is subjective, if it's only if it's about us, what I feel and what I think, then when you disagree with a person, the person experiences it, experiences it as hatred, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why disagreement is misinterpreted as hatred these days. And that's why you got people on both sides of the equation um, assuming that everyone on the other side hates them and then hating them back, back in response. Wow. And uh, I don't know how we're going to overcome it, but I hope we can. Yeah. Um, a lot of my friends say that they believe that the witness of Christ has been uh, irreparably damaged or at least set back as a result of the strong um, religious, conservative religious support for this president. Uh, and, and I don't know that it's the support so much as it is the appearance of uh, hypocrisy in condemning uh, the similar behaviors. You alluded to this earlier, to condemning the similar behaviors in previous presidents and glossing over those behaviors in this president. Um, and their, their, um, their conclusion is that the witness of Christ has been irreparably damaged the church. You know, the witness of the church has been set back years and years and years. Uh, is that true? Do you, do you think that the, the state of our politics right now has uh, damaged the witness of Christ in the United States from the church? Yeah, you know, the extent of the damage is yet to be determined, but there, I think there definitely has been. Um, I, I think there's a—what bothers me the most— is is not that somebody uh, voted one way or the other in the election. Mm -hmm. We faced a very difficult choice. I think the in terms of quality of candidates, this is the probably the lowest quality election, and that I can remember. Yeah, you know, and and, I, and I'm 44 years old. I mean, easily the lowest quality. So I, the the problem I think arises when prominent evangelical spokespeople. Uh, uh, maintain a full frontal embrace with the president yeah, uh, and are unwilling to be even handed about it, um, affirm what he does or says that is good, but then, you know, critique what is not. Right. I think if Christians in general could do that, thank him for the good things that he does, but then say, but we can't agree with what you said or how you said it on this other issue, or no, we absolutely cannot say that we cannot do that. If Christians would do that, we could make um, some gains politically, but more important, I think we could keep, uh, you know, the witness of, of God's people overall, um, um, keep it from being uh, tarnished. Uh, and, it, you know, here's what I'm worried about. I'm talking about the, the, the narratives of the secular news outlets, that the secular news outlets, the people that run them are often pretty cynical, right? And they're not concerned whether they're being hypocritical or not. They just know that whenever <laughs> Bill Clinton does something or Barack, or Barack Obama does it, uh, they're either supposed to praise it effusively or criticize it severely. Mm -hmm. 
And then conversely, whenever their own guy gets in office, whatever they would have criticized in Obama or Clinton, we can praise in Trump and vice versa. Right. And we've got to well, we've got to guard ourselves against this kind of hypocrisy. Yeah. If yeah. Bill Clinton or Barack Obama would, would have done it and it would have made you furious, then it should also make you furious if Donald Trump does it. Yeah. Vice versa. Yeah. Uh, Christians can't depend upon the news media to be the arbiter of what is uh, true and righteous. We're the ones that are kind of tasked with that. Uh, and I think it is an evidence that we've been discipled by the culture when we're so inconsistent on those very kinds of issues and we'll defend it in one, you know, in one party's candidate and condemn it and vice versa. Uh, it goes to that. We're not looking at an ideal that's outside of our own culture. We're not looking to the scriptures to determine what's righteous and unrighteous in someone's behavior. We're, uh, I mean, for some, I guess it would just be access to power for others. It would just be the, you know, the bragging rights. Hey, my guy's better than your girl or whatever. Um, but man, that's just such a, it's such a need, I think. Uh, there, there's no unified, uh, there's, let me say it this way, there's not a, there's not a loud enough unified voice um, from, from believers as to um, how, how to stand astride the world and uh, demonstrate the righteousness of God uh, in the culture. And I think that's really needed. And I think public theology is, is, a, is part and parcel of that. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, in the old days, we talked about wanting a revival in our country. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, when preachers talked about it, they felt like the only solution for anything in our country, you know, was meetings yeah. and um, conversion stories. But then I think evangelicals have, have swung in the other direction, and we focused almost exclusively on political action. Yeah. And what we actually need is a combination of both of those, and that's what I think a good public theologian should do, is to say, listen, we're going to have to have genuine spiritual renewal among Christians. We're going to have to see an act of God, of people coming to faith in Christ, secular people, um, if we're going to help uh, nudge our nation in the right direction. And then on the other hand, we're going to need political action. You know, evangelicals don't understand institution building Mm. very well. We understand movements, but not institution building. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to build strong institutions, um, political uh, think tanks, educational institutions. We're going to have to um, do the hard work of culture making and what, uh, as they call it today, cultural engagement. Uh, we're going to have to do those sort of things. We're going to have to do it in combination if we're going to have a chance, I think, to, you know, um, show the world how great our Lord is. My guest today on Uncommentary has been Bruce Ashford, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, Bruce, thanks for stopping by. Marty, thank you so much. It's been great being on the show. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, Mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or a review system, if you'd take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary, 
financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as two bucks a month, swag level three bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet for the remainder of season one. And then as soon as season two becomes available, I'll send you one of those as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod. And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Solideo Gloria. <laughs>